All right, everyone, let's take out our Bibles together. Today we go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 in our continued journey through the book of Mark. We are at chapter 3 starting in verse 7 today. Mark chapter 3 verse 7 and following. As we begin, I want you to think about something with me. Who is someone in your life that you owe a great deal to? Someone who has invested in you that you are particularly thankful for the time and the energy and the concern and care that they've given to you. You might think of a mom or a dad right off the bat, but also what about those people who are not our parents? Perhaps an extended family member, perhaps someone not even a family member who didn't have to but took their time and their energy and cared so much about you that they taught you and helped you to grow. Perhaps it's someone who helped you to grow in your knowledge of how to do a particular job, give you a skill. Perhaps it was someone who helped you at a particularly rough time in life. Or, most particularly and specifically this morning, someone who invested in you spiritually. Do you have anybody like that? Someone that you owe a great deal to because of what they gave to you spiritually. How they pointed you to the Lord and helped you come to know Christ and to follow Christ. With that in mind, I want to read our text this morning. We're going to go from Mark chapter 3 verse 7 down to verse 19. That's going to be our text today. Mark 3, 7 through 19. This is God's word. Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now today we're not going to spend a lot of time in verses 7 through 12, but I will draw your attention there very briefly as we begin. Verses 7 through 12, we're not going to spend a lot of time here for two reasons. Number one, this is kind of a transitional paragraph, if you really get the sense of it, moving to another idea, another topic. But also, we've spent a good deal of time on much of this, much of what's in verses 7 through 12, in prior sermons in Mark, just recently. 
For instance, it says Jesus was healing many who had diseases. We see the healing power of Christ here. We see toward the end there, verse 11, the demons know his name. They know who he is. We pointed out a few weeks ago how ironic it is that the spiritual leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, did not recognize Jesus when he showed up in front of them, and yet the demons knew exactly who he was. And then, verse 12, we looked at this again a couple weeks ago, how he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The, the secrecy of Jesus, the surprising secrecy, and telling people who know him, don't go out and spread the word. Why? Well, because his hour had not yet come. He knows once people start to realize who he really is, it starts a chain of events that eventually leads to his death. But this is still early in his ministry, and he has many things to do, many tasks the Father has given to him to complete before his time is up. And so he doesn't want that to be accelerated too fast. He doesn't want that to happen sooner than the right appointed time. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. What we are going to spend significant time on is verses 13 through 19, the calling of the 12 apostles. The calling of the 12 apostles. And I want to begin with verse 13 there, where it says, He called to him those whom he desired. Jesus called those he wanted to himself. Those he wanted. Luke's account of this very thing, remember the, the Gospels often have parallel accounts of the same event. In Luke 6, we read of this event. And in Luke 6, it tells us that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before doing this. He spent an entire night, awake all night, praying all night before he chose the 12 that he wanted to be his apostles. It was a monumental decision. It was absolutely massive, a moment in the history of the world that would reverberate out even to what we are doing this very moment. That moment reverberates out to this moment. As far removed as we are, we're still feeling the effects of it. So Jesus understood the weight of what he was about to do. He spent all night in fervent prayer, seeking the will of the Lord, making sure that he was in the will of the Lord before he named his 12 apostles. Now that number 12 is not an accident. It's on purpose that he had 12 Not 11, not 13, but 12. Remember in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob has his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Every Jew, up until even Jesus' day, would have traced their lineage back to one of those tribes. Which tribe are you? Which tribe are you? The 12 tribes of Israel. But now in the New Covenant... The people of God would no longer be defined by the the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. They would be defined and kind of shepherded, if you will, by 12 men called apostles. It's a, a break. Remember, in this section of Mark, we've looked at this in previous sermons. We, we looked at the last two times, the last two times we preached on Mark, Jesus was inaugurating a new age. He's bringing in a new age making a break with the old covenant and instituting a new one. And now instead of 12 tribes of Israel, there's 12 apostles for the new covenant. And that number 12 is vitally important. For example, in Revelation, we are told the new Jerusalem that we will dwell in for all eternity, the new Jerusalem 
has 12 gates, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Stationed at those gates are 12 angels. The city's walls have 12 foundations. On each foundation, written the name of one of the apostles of Christ. And we are told that before the throne of God, 24 elders are around the throne, falling down on their faces, casting their crowns before Jesus. 24 elders, 12 plus, plus 12, the indication being the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, and the 12 apostles, all the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, we see the tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, 12 months of the year, for the healing of the nations. This number 12 is significant in Scripture. And Jesus calls 12 men to be his apostles on purpose. But it's not so much the number today that I want you to focus on as the men. When we think about the 12 apostles, it's important for us to be often reminded of the many different kinds of guys that Jesus called to himself. All kinds. Even today, Jesus calls all kinds, and we see it way back when he called his 12 disciples. And to remember that this is exactly who he wanted. He called to himself those that he wanted. He chose them on purpose. Now, to the world, these would have seemed like leftovers. These were the guys that no one else really wanted. There's no other rabbi that's going to call these guys to follow him. You see, every now and then, In the sports world, you'll see a sports team that has one guy that's so good that it doesn't really even matter what the other players are. doesn't matter who the other players are. He's so good, he's going to win with anybody. He is so good, you can surround him him with any, any just kind of capable players, and all of a sudden, they will have career years because he makes everyone else better, and he's so good at leading a team that they win no matter what. In the NBA, which I tend to follow every now and then, a few years ago, there was this guy who went to another team named Jimmy Butler. And when he went to that other team, just to show them what winning was all about, he said, Coach, practice. Uh, I want to change practice today. Won't you give me four of, of the, the, the bench warmers? Four of the bench warmers. We're going to play the starters, and we're going to beat them. And that's exactly what he did. They beat him because he was that good. So every now and then this happens on a sports team. This is kind of what Jesus is doing here. These are the the men that no one else wants, and that's exactly the team Jesus picks. This is exactly who he does want. He takes the ones no one else wanted, and he turns them into a group that would go on to change the world. A group that would go on to change the world. Think about this bunch here that we have. You've got Matthew, a tax collector and a trader. He's rich, but he's, he's gotten rich off the backs of his own people. And he's working for the Roman government. So you've got this guy. On, on the very other side, you've got Simon the Zealot, who, who's really a, a Jewish nationalist who hates the government so much, he's working violently against them, sometimes even to assassinate members of that Roman government. So you've got two opposite ends of the spectrum, Matthew and Simon there. You've got some fishermen Very blue-collar workers. They're not the guys you would expect going around with a rabbi learning and preaching. One of whom, the fisherman, one of whom seems to be quite brash and bold and often sticks his foot in his mouth. Who's that? Peter. You've got two brothers 
who Jesus nicknames sons of thunder, not as a compliment, but because they have a temper problem. You've got one whom he knew, verse 19, Judas Iscariot, whom he knew would eventually betray him. Now remember, he called to himself those he wanted, exactly whom he wanted, knowing what kind of men they were, knowing what kind of men they would become, and Judas, knowing that he would betray him. Think about his prayer all night long before this moment and then calling the one that would eventually betray him. You've got to get this exactly right. He spends all night in prayer before the Lord. He's about to call the twelve, including one that will betray him to his death and fulfill the plan of God for all eternity. And then some other guys. Some other guys that don't really get as much attention as the others. I personally really appreciate that their names are here. Guys like Thaddeus or James, the son of Alphaeus, or sometimes it says James the Less. I really appreciate these guys and the fact that they're named. Because they they never did much of anything worth mentioning in the Gospels. They, They never wrote any books of the Bible, but they were faithful followers. You know, sometimes God's not calling us to be the ones that everybody else notices. God's calling many of us to just be faithful followers. Just be faithful. But the encouraging part about this is Thaddeus, James, these guys were named among the 12 apostles. Their name continues on in Scripture for all of time because they were just faithful followers. God has called every single one of us to be a faithful follower. Whether anyone else knows about us or not. You see, Jesus saw in these men the qualities that truly mattered for leadership in his kingdom. The qualities that truly mattered for leadership in the kingdom. These men were teachable. These men were willing. These men were moldable. These men were ordinary. These men were honest about their sinfulness. And these men were looking for someone to lead them. If you want to be used by God for great things in his kingdom, it doesn't take a lot of talent. It doesn't take a lot of natural ability. It doesn't take a lot of influence or money or status. It doesn't even take holiness. Hear me on this. If you want to be used for God, It doesn't even take holiness, at least initially. Now, you have to be willing to be made holy. You have to be willing to do the work to become holy if you want to follow Jesus. But initially, when Jesus called these guys, they were anything but holy. They were the farthest thing from holy. You don't have to have your life all together for Jesus to call you to himself, to come to him, and to say, yes, sir. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever. If you will save me, I will, I, will, I will serve you. You don't even have to be holy initially to do this. It just takes a humble willingness to put yourself in the hands of the Lord and to do what he asks. Jesus can use anybody like that. He can use anybody like that. In fact, it's God's good pleasure to use the ordinary, to use the leftovers, to use the outcasts of the world 
for his plan and for his purposes. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And so if if you're sitting there this morning saying, I am not special, I'm really not all that gifted, I'm really not all that talented, I, I don't get picked first for the team, I don't have a ton of people admiring me and hanging on my words. In fact, I'm kind of less than ordinary. Sometimes I even get made fun of, passed over. I've made a mess of my life. That's exactly the kind of people God delights to use for his own glory. It's exactly the kind of people God delights to use. Now, I want you to notice verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him so that they might be with him. I want to dwell on this for a second. That's one of those little phrases that you could just pass right over and go on to to more important parts of the text, if you will. But don't pass over this crucial detail. He called them to himself so that they might be with him. There's a couple ways I think this applies to us particularly. Number one, Jesus' plan to change the world was not to preach to the masses. Jesus' plan to change the world was not to drum up a Billy Graham-style crusade. It wasn't to get the ministry out to as many people as possible. No, his plan to change the world was to invest in 12 men in a small group for three years. That was his plan. It sounds ridiculously simple and small in scope. And that was the way Jesus changed the world. I, I find particular help on this from a little book that I read many years ago and have read many times since called The Master Plan of Evangelism by a guy named Robert Coleman. It's a book like this big, Master Plan of Evangelism. And in that book, Robert Coleman shows us this very simple but profound plan of Jesus's to change the world, to have 12 men to just be with him. And that's how he did it. He writes in that book that Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. And even within that select group of 12, if you remember, he gave special attention and invested heavily and deeply, even more so than the rest, in three. An inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, right? That was his plan to change the world. Brothers and sisters, let's think about the ministry of this church. And let's think about all of our own ministries, right? If you're a Christian, you have a ministry. You have a ministry if you're a Christian. Let's think about our ministries and the ministry of this church. What is going to be the result of your life lived for God? What is going to be the long-term result of your life lived for God? What kind of impact will your life have on this world and on the kingdom of God? Do you want your life to count long after you are gone? Jesus was not concerned with the momentary applause of the masses. But he was concerned with reproducing himself in the lives of a small group of people so that after he was gone, they could go and do likewise. 
And in this way, Jesus' life and his ministry has reverberated throughout the world these past 2,000 years. And it started with 12 guys for three years. He was not concerned with the applause of the masses in the moment. That's what I feel like we are so concerned with these days. We want everybody to see our ministry and to see us and to think, man, that, that, that church is great. Or there were so many people at that event or there were so many people in the seats that one weekend. What's it going to matter as the years go by? What's going to matter after we're already gone? What kind of impact is our life going to leave behind and our ministry going to leave behind? Brothers and sisters, if you want to affect someone else for Christ, all you have to do is live sold out for Christ yourself and then just let someone else be with you to watch and learn. And it's so much more effective than trying to reach the masses with an event or a program. Instead of trying to reach thousands, let's invest deeply in just a few. Have you ever looked at someone like a Billy Graham or something like that and, and thank the Lord, praise the Lord for Billy Graham and his ministry and people like that, right? But when I look at that, I think, I can't do that. I'm just an ordinary guy. Right? I just, I can't reach people like that. I can't reach that many people. Do you ever think stuff like that? Well, the question is, can you reach one other person? Can you reach two other people? Can you invest in the lives of someone, and not just one time, but deeply, consistently, over the course of years, perhaps. Just live sold out for Christ yourself, and then let someone else be with you to watch and learn. This was Jesus' very simple plan for the apostles. He let them be with him. He let them follow him. And as they did, they learned what it means to commune with God. They learned what it meant to rely on the Holy Spirit's power. As they were with Jesus and as they watched, they learned what it meant to teach with authority and humility. They learned what it meant to lead by serving. They learned what it meant to sacrifice yourself for the good of others because they were with him, watching and learning. Yes, Jesus taught them with words explicitly, but more often than not, it was in the moment as an opportunity presented itself. You see, Jesus' life was one living sermon. And they were, they were learning the whole time. They were with him. Parents, this is exactly what we've been called to do. Parents, you've been given this on a, a silver platter, so to speak. You think it's, it's hard to get somebody to just be with you and watch and learn? Well, if you're a parent, your kids are doing it. God has given you them, and they are with you, and they are watching and learning. Now, that tells us a lot because... It really matters, parents, how we live for the Lord. It really matters that we're not just a Christian on Sundays and then we go live a totally different life Monday through Saturday because they're watching. They're going to learn. They're going to see. Learning like that is more caught than taught. Amen? And so they're going to see your life. Are you living for the Lord consistently? Because they're with you and they're watching. But this is not just for parents. This is not just for parents. Let's say you're not a parent. Let's say you, your kids are already grown and out of the house. This is for all Christians. Jesus is doing this to 12 men who were not his kids. 
Any Christian can do this. Let me, let me ask you two questions this morning. And these two questions go out to two different groups of people. You're going to find yourself in one of these two groups. Two different groups of people, two questions. On the one hand, for those of you who consider yourself mature in the faith, and I'm not saying pridefully, I'm saying you're honestly looking at yourself. I'm, I'm decently mature in the faith. I've been walking with the Lord for more than a few years. For those of you who consider yourself mature in the faith, who can you invest in like this? Would you prayerfully consider who you might be able to invest in like this? Would you take time to pray and ask the Lord if he would give you someone that you could invest in deeply like Jesus did to the 12? Someone that you could disciple? Someone that you could teach? Someone that you could let them be with you and learn what you know about following the Lord? Would you prayerfully consider that? Or, for those of you who would not consider yourself mature in the faith, you're, you're less mature in your faith, would you consider praying about someone to invest in you? Would you consider asking the Lord, God, would you send someone to invest in me? Would you send someone to me to do this? Because I am here to tell you, it will change your life. It will change your life. When I got to college at the University of Kentucky as a freshman, in the providence of the Lord, I, I, I was staying at the, the second floor of one of these three-floor three, three low-rise dorms. I was staying in the middle floor. And in the providence of the Lord, I thought it was a random choice. I thought it was just a random choice where I, where I was staying in the dorms. In the providence of the Lord, the two RAs, resident advisors, on either side of that floor were two of the most mature Christian men I've ever met in my life. One's name was Josh, the other's name was Matt. Two of the most mature Christian men I've ever met at a secular UK campus in the dorms, right? This is the providence of the Lord. After a few weeks, one of them, Matt, realizes, oh, hey, John's a Christian. He comes up to me and he says, John, do you want to be discipled? And I said, I really don't even have any clue what you're talking about. And he said, I want to I invest in you. I want to teach you everything I know about following the Lord. I want to give you what somebody gave to me. And I, I said, uh, sure, I guess. But what I didn't realize at the time was that, that that next two and a half year period where he did that changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. Because he spent the time to invest in me. He did what we're talking about here. What Jesus did to his disciples. He did that. Now, I don't usually do this, but I asked the, the guys in the back to put up this picture today. Now, one of those guys looks like an absolute bum. I'm sorry about that. It was college. Okay, it was college. But this is, back in college, this is not just a picture of five random guys. This picture was taken in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When all of a sudden, we were at a Christian conference in Pittsburgh, this junior year of college, something like that. All of a sudden, we realized, holy cow, we have five generations of discipleship in this room. This may never happen again. We've got to take a picture. And it, it hasn't ever happened again. I've never had that happen again in my whole life. We took a picture. I'm so glad we did. That man to the very far left, his name is Chuck Bailey. I had never met Chuck Bailey. I had never heard of Chuck Bailey. Until that weekend, when I realized Chuck spent years discipling the man who's on his left, Dan. And Dan then spent years discipling the man on his left, Matt. 
And then Matt spent two and a half years changing the life of that bum-looking guy who's fourth. And then I spent some time discipling. I was in the middle of discipling that, that man on the very far end. His name was Nick. There's five generations of discipleship in one picture. And, and we just couldn't believe it when we realized it. And we said, we have to, we have to take a picture. It's, it's one of the, the pictures that I cherish absolute most in the whole collection of photos that I have. It's one of my absolute most important, most cherished pictures. But you see, I owe a great deal to that man at the very far left named Chuck. And I, 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 I don't even know him today. I've only met him once and it was there. I, we, didn't, we don't even talk. And I owe him a great deal. You guys, I, this past week, I was texting Matt, the guy right next to me there in the very middle. And I said, Matt, I'm, I'm doing a sermon on Jesus calling his disciples I've been thinking a lot about you. I just need to say thank you again for all the time that you invested in my life. And then I told him, I said, and you need to know my congregation owes you a great deal, even though most of them have no idea. Owes you a great deal. You see? And so earlier I was asking you to think about people who have influenced you. This is me. It changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And so... I ask you to think about who you might be able to invest in or who might be able to invest in you, to disciple them, to do something for them that could radically change their life and could leave uh, an influence from you even after you're gone if people continue to pass it along. Now, I said there was two ways that this might apply to us. The second way is this. Jesus is not just interested in your utility. Jesus called these men to be with him. He called them to be with him. You see, Jesus is not just interested in what you can bring to the table, in the ways that he can use you to build his kingdom. Jesus is interested in you. In you. Not just what he can use you for. He's interested in you. He calls us to himself that we might be with him. You see, following Jesus is not just about doing things. It's not just about kingdom work. It's about finding and experiencing the one your soul was made for. We see this all over the Psalms because David knew about this. David experienced this. David says in Psalm 38, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, rather. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 27, 4, David says, one thing I have asked for of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's, he's talking about being with the Lord. Psalm 37, 4, David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you get the sense that David is talking from experience there. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. I know I've been there. I'm in the middle of it. Psalm 73, verse 25, listen to this one. David says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We sing a song here at church every now and then that goes like this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. There is no greater thing. That's the end of it all. That's the whole point. Knowing 
Jesus. Abiding in Christ. Being with the Lord. It takes work and it takes time. It won't happen right away. If, you, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, that sounds wonderful and I've never experienced it before. It's not going to happen right away to the point to where, you know, some of us who have been walking with Christ for years and years and years, that, that they've worked on this for a long time. If you haven't done that, it's not going to happen for you immediately. But if you do seek him, to know him, and to enjoy him, you will find the one your soul was made for. You will begin to find that your, your soul recognizes him. You understand that? When you start to, to seek the Lord from your heart, you begin to feel and to understand and to experience, my soul recognizes him. It recognizes him. Why? How? Because he made you. And he made you for himself. He made you so that he could give you himself and so that you could be with him. Now, that's not all it says. Verse 14, it says, He called them so that they might be with him and that he might send them out. That he might send them out. Verse 14 there. I said following Jesus isn't all about doing things, but it is some about that. It is some about that. Jesus doesn't just call us to worship and enjoy him. He calls us to go and make disciples. To make disciples. To go and do the work of discipling. To make disciples and disciple them. Jesus said in his great commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We have work to do, brothers and sisters. He calls us to himself that we might be with him, but also that we, he might send us out. There's both of those things going on. One of the, the men that I greatly admire, didn't know this man at all, but read about him, his name was Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigator's Ministry. And Dawson Trotman's motto became the motto of the navigators. His motto was this. His life motto was to know him and to make him known. And that's what we're talking about here. Both. Jesus calls us to be with him and he calls us so that he might send us out. To know him and to go make him known. It's a dual purpose here. Now, it's, under, it's important to understand from this text, we don't have the same authority that the apostles had. Verse 15 says they have, uh, they, Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons elsewhere. In Scripture, it says that he gave them authority to do miracles and to miraculously heal. We don't have the same kind of authority that the apostles had. The apostles are in a category all their own. Understand that. So much confusion exists in the church today because, not in this church, I'm saying in the church globally, because people have not been taught properly on this, that the apostles are in a category all their own. We are not apostles. We cannot become apostles. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. He called to himself 12 apostles. It's important that there were 12. All right, We are not in that category, but we have been sent out all the same. 
We have been called to him and we have been sent out. And the one who has all authority says he is going to be with us every step of the way. You don't have the same authority that the apostles have. True. I don't have that kind of authority. But remember the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and surely I will be with you as you go to the very end of the age. The one who has all authority is with us. Not just with us in a a, a nice, distant way. With us. If you're a Christian, he's with us. He's with you right here. His spirit living inside of you. And he has all authority. We have been sent out. We've been sent out to proclaim the good news. To preach. We've been sent out to preach the good news. To extend God's offer of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18, Paul says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. We've been given that message and that task. If you're a Christian today, you are a minister of reconciliation, and you've been given this message. What's the message? Well, Paul said it right there, that God is reconciling the world to himself. He's not counting people's trespasses against them. And he's entrusted that message to us. We're to go out and proclaim it. Guess what, world? There is a God who rules the world and is coming again someday. But he has reconciled people to himself through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And he is, he, is, he is bringing people into his family and not counting their sins against him. Do you want to be a part of that? He is not counting people's sins against him. You realize the ruler of the universe is offering you a way to have your sins not count against you. It's horrible to think about the end of all things and the judgment of God when he will count people's sins against him who have not Come to Jesus for forgiveness. But it's such wonderful news that he's offering a way out of that to anyone who will come to him through Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. You've got to understand the desperate need that every human being has, including every single one of you, that if you are not reconciled to God, it is going to be absolutely awful for all eternity. But it's not hard to be reconciled to God. You've just got to give your life over to his son. And then your sins won't be counted against you. That's the good news. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the verse right after what we just read, Paul says, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, God made Jesus to become sin. And then he punished him because he was sin. So that through him, we might receive something that was foreign to us. Sin was foreign to Jesus. Him who knew no sin became sin. 
so that we might become something that we are not, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Where are you with that today? Has God given you the gift of knowing confidently that you are not in Christ and that you are not saved? If he has, what are you going to do about it? You can be reconciled to God today. You can be reconciled to God and have your sins forgiven today. You can know today that you are right with the Lord and that when Jesus comes, you will be protected from the wrath of God. You can know that today. Do you want to? Right now, we're going to spend some time in prayer. Each week after the sermon... We give a few moments of silent, reflective prayer, asking you to go to the Lord and to respond in whatever way that you need to, to what he has just laid on our hearts. And so we ask that you use that time for just that right now. These next couple minutes, pray to the Lord, respond to him. After we each respond individually in prayer, we'll come back together. We'll have an invitation time where those who need to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. Right now, let's pray for a little bit.